You're listening to The Bunker New York, live on Red Bull Radio. listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio. I'm your host, Brian Kasnick, and today I'm joined by special guest Tatantan Dufante, uh, here from Columbus, Ohio. He is a Midwest techno legend. Very honored to have him in the studio today. We're going to get into the mix with him, and then he'll be joining us for an interview in about 45 minutes or so. But right now we're going to get straight into the mix with Tatantan. You're listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio.
Hello, you're listening to The Bunker New York here on Red Bull Radio. I'm your host, Brian Kasnick, and we've been in the mix with Tatantan Duvante, who is joining us from Columbus, Ohio. It's uh, one of the Midwest techno legends. Uh, thanks Hello. a lot for joining us. Hello there. <laughs> thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Great to have you here. Um, I guess we should start at the start. Um, when, what, what was your introduction to electronic music? Uh, like first time going out to an event or maybe being in Columbus, your first time hearing the music wasn't an event? Uh, I'd say, yeah, it was uh, going out to random campus bars and mainly listening to kind of industrial influenced music. Right. And then uh, for maybe a block of 15, 20 minutes, they throw in some underground house techno right. rave. So that was kind of the first introduction. A lot of uh, 808 State and LFO, things of that nature. Cool. And you were, so you were born and raised in Columbus? That is correct. And you're, you're there now. Yep. Um, so what, were the like early earliest rave experiences you had were these uh well i guess first question were you were you involved in producing events in the early 90s mid 90s when when did that happen started producing events with the elemental crew in may of 1993 was our first official event that we produced wow yeah. been at this for a long time yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh who, who are the other members of elemental uh it's very loose uh collective i'd say core uh elements if you will be uh, todd signs ed luna charles noel um that's kind of the core but there are quite a few people involved that were there from the start and it kind of mushroomed out right and uh you had was the uh, tell us a little bit about body release was that your first <laughs> that was the first thing you released like the first thing with your funny enough uh none of the body release material ever was released oh we made quite a few productions and they never were released on vinyl or digitally so cassette cassette yes that exists that counts uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah i guess i guess um but yeah we didn't have an official release we started in uh let's say 1991 and were together for about two two and a half years right and we would do live pas at raves for lack of a better term, events, parties, whatever, right. you, what have you. I mean, they were, I would say they were known as raves back then in the 90s sure. when that was happening. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. People, people shy away from that word now, but then that's, uh, I think that's what was happening. And when did you start uh, releasing your uh, solo material? My first release came out in late 1995 on Dan Curtin's Benamorphic label. Um, out of Cleveland, Ohio. So, yeah. He, and you were saying off mic before the show that was, uh, like the peak of things happening, I guess, 
raves. Talking about raves now. Raves happening in Columbus was when? I'd say it really started on the upswing around late 94, early 95. And yeah, the heyday, let's say from late 94 until maybe 99. But there was a really sweet spot between 95 and 97. Quite, quite a few events, some on the very small scale, some on the larger scale. Right. What do you? What What was happening then that made the event so great? Uh, like, what conditions were in place, maybe that aren't now or were not before and after then? I would say that uh, one is the the audience, the fact that there was communication, especially throughout the the Midwest, about what particular city was doing event so you would have an event and not have too many others going on within let's say a three hour drive to six hour drive radius right so everyone would converge on one city whether it be dayton columbus cincinnati cleveland pittsburgh detroit the kind of uh there was a midwest raves uh chat group early early, yeah yeah where it was all organized so that's that's amazing to think now because people have trouble doing that within their own city and own little micro scene Uh, to think that back in the day people were for like an entire region of the united states were not competing is pretty cool to think about and uh the culture that that I mean, you know, we have some of this culture now in the U.S. of people traveling to other cities yeah, to go does, out. But for the exist, most part, yeah. for the most part, people just go out in their home cities. Uh, and yeah, I hear I hear about the like people just jumping in a car in the Midwest and going to wherever the party was that weekend. Correct. Yeah, that, that those were the days. Yes, as, as I say. Uh, so what you and you're saying this ended around '99. So what what happened around then? Uh, kind of what you were speaking of that there back in the day there was a lack of competition and then the scene became oversaturated where you would have not one event but ten right within the region and the size of the parties the uh, it was more trendy back then not to have uh, longer DJ sets you'd have right. either a multitude of genres in one room hour, hour and a half long sets or you'd have multi rooms that featured a genre but there'd be so many acts it would get to be really pricey yeah it was pretty insane when you look at a lot of those old flyers like you were saying it's like wait how did how did 40 DJs play in one night right. at one party. It's pretty, pretty insane. It's just how many names can you get on a flyer? Everybody playing 45 minute sets. And yeah, that's not, and I actually kind of like how things have focused more on an act or two or three to really get deep into their sets. I, I, I like that current trend. I yeah, things have that. things have definitely moved back to that, and even to the extreme of you see a lot of events now with one or maybe two artists playing the right. entire uh, night. Yes, which is super cool. You can't. There's no. It's nice to see artists vibing off each other, but I feel like you can't ever get that kind of thing happening with uh, a whole bunch of artists playing on top of each other. 
Uh, so at some point in the late 90s, you founded Residual Recordings? In 1998, March was our first release. Right. And is that is that your label or is it a collective? It started off with, uh, I had a business partner, TJ. Um, we started the label together. He worked at a record store. I worked at another store. And we basically started it because we were getting in all these vinyl records, but had an idea of a sound that we wanted to hear. And it's like, hey, why don't we put our own spin on it? And uh, actually the name Residual also is because a lot of the first releases were tracks from artists that other labels didn't want or they fell through their cracks. Right. So, yeah. Um, was the focus always on uh, Midwest artists and friends of yours? It was more uh, friends. I wouldn't say always Midwest artists. I mean, we had Fabrice uh, League from Belgium. And who else? We kind of expanded out as time went on. But yeah, now come to think of it, a lot of Midwest artists and friends and a chance for me to get some of my music heard as well. Right. So you were you were working on music and maybe didn't didn't always have an outlet and uh, did what a lot of people do, just rolled up your sleeves and did it yourself. Um, and the the label is still active today. Yes, there was a a hiatus, but uh, in 2016, kind of uh, rejuvenated and came back full force and ooh, really between represses and new releases have really been kind of going for it. Yeah, I noticed when I was looking at the Discogs today that there was this kind of long break, almost, or maybe, I guess, a decade-long decade. Decade yeah. break. So what what happened there? Why did you cease operations or take this break? Uh, let's say around 2004 is when the label basically became exclusively mine. Um, it was difficult at the time to manage it and then in 2006 I moved to New York and the idea of running a record label and trying to survive in New York on top of uh, that's kind of when the whole vinyl distribution right kind of collapse started to happen distributors were closing digital the digital market was starting to take off so uh, yeah, around 2006, just came a became a very frightening enterprise. Yeah, so. I, yeah, I noticed too. Not just on the label, but kind of you. I mean, you have I didn't even count, but you have a lot of releases over the years that you've put out under your own name, and it seems like uh, those years that you were in New York from like starting in the mid 2000s, you weren't releasing a lot of music. Is that uh, kind of the same reason? Did you did you have your studio set up when you were here in New York? Uh, before I moved, I sold all of my gear. Wow. Yeah, and uh, produced exclusively on the computer. So yeah, it's a little heartbreaking to tell the story. A few pieces, <laughs> of, uh, pieces of gear that I definitely miss. But um, oh, that's that's not really the reason, though. I mean, a lot of New York apartments are small, so that was part of the reason for selling all the gear. But um, yeah. 
So what was what was the reason for uh, after being in Ohio your whole life? What was the reason for moving to New York City? Well, I hadn't lived anywhere else, so I wanted to give it a go, give it a try, and uh, see what else was out there. And uh, New York was definitely good for uh, how do, how do I say it? I've always been kind of a laid back, shy person. And it really uh, hardened my exterior shell right. for the positive. So, yeah, that was uh, definitely a benefit of being in the city. Glad I, glad I did it. Yeah. And then, uh, so at what point do you go back to Columbus? And what was the, what was the decision process there? What, what made you want to go back? Uh, I'd say as early as... 2009 I thought about moving from New York and then I was working a crazy job crazy hours and would use my vacation time to tour and I started getting this is like 2013 offers to play overseas and couldn't get the time off work and it just started to get really frustrating yeah that's a bummer and i know from experience it can be very hard to kind of uh organize tours properly so that your gigs are kind of clustered together and that's especially important when you're uh trying to squeeze them in with a you know a full-time day job seen i've seen a lot of artists really struggle with that yeah it's it's can be very difficult right especially in new york yeah yeah so i think what happened when you did move back to columbus is uh, this is a really cool story so why don't you uh tell us about what midwest fresh is and how it started uh, midwest fresh is a monthly event it actually was it was started by jed james and kevin Bruger. um it basically takes from the influences of collectives throughout the Midwest, such as uh, Naughty Bad Fun Collective out of Chicago that does uh, industry brunch, and also the events that IT do. Yeah, no way back. Yeah, interdimensional transfusions. Yes, and uh, also Hot Mass, and it's kind of those influences, but putting that eclectic Ohio spin on them. Um, the first guest at the very first Midwest Fresh were myself and Sean Rudiman live. That was the first Midwest Fresh. Um, then there were other members brought into the fold to kind of help facilitate it. About a year after it got going, I, I went to every single one that I, I could if I was in town. And I actually was roommates with Jed at the time. And he's like, you've been doing this for a long time. Um, you seem to be well connected with a lot of artists. I think that, yeah, you coming on board would, would be great and came on board. And, uh, as I kind of say, the rest is history. We've really been trying to push the boundaries of a small intimate event with a very attentive, open audience is kind of what, what we're going for yeah yeah i had a chance to play at the party last month and i found the audience was i don't know exactly what i was expecting but i feel like they were quite a bit uh 
younger than I thought they were going to be for some reason. Because every, you know, knowing you and Jed, I somehow expected more older, seasoned Midwest ravers. But you have this very young crowd who seem to me extremely dedicated to what you're doing and very uh there was no no pretense at all on that dance floor everybody everybody's just you know they walk in the door they start dancing they dance until they leave it's a very for me it was very refreshing to see that i mean because there's not too much else going on in columbus ohio right or even honestly in the region it's that once a month release they can expect just to a pure a purity just to come in and let it all out without without being judged for being yourself yeah and it's yeah so everybody shows up um what kind of venues are you using for this party because i i mean for people who don't know there's really no there's not like uh your local techno club that you guys can use to definitely not it is total diy um we've been using a lot of art galleries, photo studios, those have been our uh, main two uh, go-tos for the past, let's say, year, year and a half. Previously, we've been in uh, we were in a warehouse where they used to make parts for ATMs and screws, natural okay. <laughs> old school technology. And before that, we were at a meat processing plant oh wow called it was called uh <laughs> there was a big sign called meat that said meat sink so it kind of got the nickname meat sink and yeah we've been basically wherever we can find to do what we do um but yeah mainly warehouse spaces art galleries and we bring in our own sound set it up tear it down it's it's yeah, makes you, for a long weekend i mean you you all collectively own the sound system and the parachutes and all the deco it's all it's like you do all that yourself indeed it's <laughs> a lot but it's it's well worth it just to uh to be able to bring talent to our hometown it's totally totally right worth it. and it's pretty much the only game in town it seems like there are other events, but as far as like yeah, underground DIY late night events, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Cool. Um, I guess before we get into a mix, a couple more things I want to go over. What is uh, what is residual classic? Residual classic is it's a sub label of residual, and essentially that is a platform for releases that I've done on other labels that are either rare now or should see the light of day again so it's kind of like taking ownership of those tracks back and getting them out there mainly to uh defeat the discog sharks right has have there been challenges to doing that has it been easy for like is it usually the labels who put it out you're in communication with them and they're cool with you doing that typically it's like uh yeah you've you've got the rights to the music sure that's not a problem at all um i actually have a couple a repast that just came out um on metamorphic dan kurt and i were discussing having it be on residual classic but then we decided to just re-release it on metamorphic and then there's an EP that I did for an Italian label called 
Neroli that was, was the same situation, was considering doing it on Residual Classic, but then we've decided to make it a repress on the actual label. Cool. But it's all to the whole Discogs thing. I mean, it's cool, a cool way to find music, but it's really tough to see your releases being sold for $80, $100. Right, and of course, it's secondhand market, so you're seeing none of that. Correct. And I assume this stuff is not, these older releases are not available digitally at all, so... No. So basically nobody nobody can hear the music unless they're willing to pay $80 on Discogs, so you're fighting that. Right. Which I think it's smart. Um, I know you have this gig for people who are in New York City tomorrow night on Friday... It's the selectors with Tamer at Rose Gold. Um, anything, any other exciting gigs or releases coming up that you want to shout out before we get back into the mix here? Sure. Uh, let's see. As far as gigs, I am heading on tour next week, actually. Um, Friday, I'll be in Bergen, Norway. Saturday, I'll be in Oslo. And then the following weekend, I will be doing my live PA in London, in the UK, for the first time. Cool. And then that Saturday, I'll be doing a DJ set at uh, Trezor Berlin, on the upstairs at Globus. Yeah, so, cool. Yeah. Lots of nice gigs. Are you pl- uh, Is playing live something that you do frequently, or is that kind of a rare, special... It is pretty rare. I... Let's say that I do it two to four times a year would be a lot, but uh, let's say about twice a year. I usually like about 12 weeks lead time to prepare for it. Right. Each live PA is totally different and pretty much specifically geared towards the event. Right. So it's a lot. Okay. But, But I love it. Yeah. Well, very cool. That We've got about 45 minutes left here. Should we get back into the mix? Sure. Sounds good. Okay. So we're going to get back into the mix here with Tatantan Duvante, Columbus, Ohio. Uh, we'll be here until the top of the hour. You're listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio. You're listening to Red Bull Radio.
Hello, you're listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio. Just got a few minutes left here. We've been in the mix with Tatantan Duvante. Uh, great to have him in the studio. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, we'll be back in two weeks, same time with Marco Shuttle. Very excited about that. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio. Give me a voice. Give me a voice.